The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You've probably heard the statement before, but I think this uh, psalm bears it out. You can either see God through your circumstances, or you can see your circumstances through God. Obviously, the psalmist here, uh, the sons of Korah, have written a psalm for us so that we can learn how to see our circumstances through God. There's a lot of attempts by commentators to describe the original setting for the reason for the psalm. The one that is most favored, I also agree with, and that would be the siege of Jerusalem where Hezekiah was king by Sennacherib and the 185,000 Assyrians and his army that accompanied him. In the weeks and actually earlier months before the siege, if you read the couple times it's mentioned in uh, first, uh, I should say, Second Kings and also in Isaiah's prophecy that the Assyrians had come through and pretty much devastated uh, 46 villages all throughout Israel. They had taken about 200,000 Israelites captive. And now they had taken and come up to Jerusalem. They were surrounding it and a siege had begun. Um, Sennacherib had demanded through uh, communication and by letter that Hezekiah surrender unconditionally. That would be the only way that anyone would be spared. If you are familiar with the story, you'll know that God sends his angel and in one night he destroys all the 185,000 in the army. In fact, interesting, if you read the passage in 2 Kings, it says that when the dawn came, uh, when the morning came, and that's a text right here in our verse, in verse 5, God shall help her when morning dawns. And that night, uh, before God sent his angel, everything looked impossible, that the siege was coming and there was no way out and their city was doomed, but God sent help. And Hezekiah and his people in those days realized with all of Jerusalem that it was not the walls, although they were big and large, that eventually was going to give them security and the safety they were looking for. Um, even in preparation for the coming Assyrians, uh, Hezekiah had built what we call today Hezekiah's Tunnel. I had the chance to walk through it personally. We went to Israel. I know Pastor Dave sitting right back there tonight. He, he did as well. But he, he uh, diverted some of the water from the Gihon Spring, brought it in so Israel uh, or, or Jerusalem would have water supply during a siege. They had never, there's no river that flows actually through there. But because of that preparation, he was able to have water. But even that preparation wasn't going to be enough. Um, They would not be safe because even of the actual temple, which was the dwelling place of God's Shekinah glory, even though the temple was there, that in of itself was not going to be enough. Uh, They would learn from the Babylonians that even the temples there, that isn't enough to stop destruction when God's people are ungodly. The only source, let me say it again, the only source of security and safety 
for Hezekiah and for Israel against unrivaled foe would be God himself. If you read the psalm again on your own, you'll find that God's name is mentioned seven times throughout the text. In verse 1, in verse 4, twice in verse 5, verse 7, 10, and 11. The psalm is really asking us the question, where do you run when you are surrounded? When trouble comes your way in your life? And the indirect question is, where do you find your trust or where are you putting it? Are you building your own walls? Are you finding your own sources of security? Is it the water that you've channeled into the city in case of this emergency because you've prepared for these things? And all that's not are good things. And Hezekiah should have done those things. But what he realized when he put the letter out before God was that God was the only one that he could trust to bring him the safety and security that he was looking for. The psalm is divided up very easily in three stanzas, all marked off by the word Selah, and 46 verses 1 through 3, 4 through 7, and 8 through 11. And it is a battle context, seemingly the refrain or the chorus, you might say, that is mentioned twice in verse 7 and 11, is that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, is with us. Um, See, Hezekiah realized that his armies would never be enough, that the walls wouldn't be enough, the water wouldn't be enough, but that was okay, and he still could find security despite all of those things, and the reason was is because the Lord of hosts, it was his army, his power, and his strength that would allow them to have the victory. And here's what Hezekiah came to realize, and here's what you and I need to come to realize, especially in the times and days in which we live, is that we really need a theology lesson. And although it seems, and unfortunately it's a bad rap, theology looks as be dry and dusty and abstract, if the truth and reality of it's anything but that. That what we really need in difficult times, can I use the verse, in times of trouble, is a very strong, deep, and accurate theology. And by that I mean theology proper. Because the most important thing about your life and mine during these days and weeks and perhaps even longer ahead is our understanding of who God is. I mean, you can't get really anything more important than that. And so from the very, very outset, the very first phrase of the first verse, Hezekiah directs our focus so that we can have a God-centered response to trouble, like he learned to have. And so the verse says, God, first word, God is our strength and our refuge. If you've ever watched the Lord of the Rings series or read the books by Tolkien, you'll know that one of the most famous battles in the book called The Two Towers was called Helm's Deep. It was a fortress at the end of a ravine, a ravine embedded into the rock. It was huge, it was formidable, it was impenetrable, or so they said. And in the text, the king um, Theoden says that in his lifetime and well before, that the Hornburg, is what they called it, will, has never fallen to an assault. So when Saruman and the orcs and the Urukai and all the foes of mankind come against them, this is where they retreat to. And there's a reason why, because there was nothing like it. I mean, there was no fortress in all of Middle Earth even comparable to it. And see, that's what Hezekiah is saying. He says, the real fortress that we run into is not the walls of Jerusalem behind them and the gates and we shut them. No, our God is our fortress. He's our refuge. He's our strength. And it literally means 
and you put them together, it's called Hendiatus. He's a strong, he's a safe stronghold. That God's stronghold, he is so strong and so mighty that in him is our strength. Back in Old Testament times, the walls of the city were its defense. I mean, if you had no walls, uh, example, Ai, in the time of the conquest, you had really no protection whatsoever. Now, the Bible metaphorically and spiritually says in Proverbs 25, 28, he who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. In other words, defenseless. And here's what Hezekiah says. Theology lesson number one. Can I tell you, if you know God, you are never defenseless. You know, God's walls never come down. He is our refuge and our strength. He goes on to add to it that he's a very present help in trouble. Um, It's an unusual Hebrew word. It literally means is found greatly. We might be able to say it as one uh, version says, exceedingly found. The Tanakh says, and probably the best way of putting it in modern English, he's very near. He's totally available. The Assyrians, as this psalm perhaps may have been written or remembered back on, there was 185,000 Assyrians outside the walls of Jerusalem, and they were near. But here's what Hezekiah says. You know what I found? Those enemies were near, but God was more near. He was very near. He was closer to us than even the enemies outside the walls of Jerusalem. So in our text, it says that in 46.4 that God is most high. So he's transcendent. He's above everything and deserves all of our worship. But here's a great thought. God is not only most high, but he is most nigh. So God is transcendent. He's way out there, but he's also right here. He is with us, surrounded by our enemies, where there's no escape, there's no way, there's no way of getting out of it. He is right here with us all. So what kind of help is he? He's a very present help. Now, I don't know about you, but when you and I are in need of help, it does matter what kind of help uh, that you get. Um, If you need someone like I do at certain times to do things for you that you can't do yourself, that person's kind of help that they give you, it has to be that they have expertise or they have powers or they have abilities to help you solve a problem that you can't do on your own, i.e., for me, uh, fixing my car. Uh, You know, I had cars that weren't very good for the longest time since I've been here, and they would break down often, and things would go wrong, and I didn't know the first thing about getting them fixed. They were problems I certainly couldn't handle, but I had Tim Proctor, and I would call Tim Proctor on the phone, and he would say, okay, we set up an appointment, you come over, and there wasn't ever in all the years, and there were many years and many cars and many problems uh, that Tim Proctor couldn't solve, but He had great abilities and he had great power and expertise in that way. And he could really help and he did. But I called him a couple different times and believe it or not, he was on vacation. And he wasn't nearby. And and, and you know what? As great as he was and the abilities and all that he had, see, he, he had all that, but he wasn't close by. He wasn't available to help. And so you need someone who can do both. Someone that can really help you has to have the power and they have to have the presence. They have to have both of them there. You remember when Elijah 
on Mount Carmel was mocking the prophets of Baal and they were crying out to the Baal, cutting themselves, trying to get Baal to bring down fire from heaven. And Elijah mocks them. And one of the things he said to them, well, maybe he isn't doing anything because he's busy or he's on a journey. And he was mocking because, hey, maybe, maybe your God has all this power that you're asking, but he's just not around. Maybe he's on vacation. You know, and, and, and of course, the answer was, well, he didn't have really either one. But Hezekiah says, you know what kind of help God provides? God has both. When God helps you, he has all the power to solve any problem that you possibly could go through. And he is present. He's right there in the day that you need the trouble. God is there. Psalm 121, if you've never taken time to memorize it, you should. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And then it says that he who keeps your foot will not slumber, neither does he sleep nor slumber. slumber. And then there's a series of contrasts that shows, yeah, God not only has the power because he made heaven and earth, but God also has the ability to do it whenever you need it. And it says he doesn't sleep. So it says by day or by night, It says when you're going in or you're coming out. He says when the sun's out or the moon's out. So he goes through all the scenarios in Psalm 21 and says, you know what kind of helper God is? Well, God's the kind of helper because he has all the power that you ever need for any situation. No matter when it is, God can help. So we'd say God can help you with anything, anytime. God can help you through any trouble, day or night. Now, because of that, that theology lesson, who is God? That's what he is. He's a refuge. He's our strength. He's our help. That's who he is. What's the practicality of it? Well, look at the verse, verse 2. Therefore, based on who God is, see the theology? It's not just relevant or irrelevant in something you read in a book. No, it's for real life. It's for COVID-19. He says, therefore, we will not fear. See, that's the most important thing you have to have right now in your possession. Not a cure, but a theology to know who God is. And here's what Hezekiah or the psalmist or the sons of Korah want us to know. But can God really handle the big problems? I mean, I know he can handle some of the little things, maybe mundane things. I have a flat tire or a financial need. I need a few bucks. or you know. But can he handle the really big ones? And so here's what the psalmist is doing here. He's going to give us kind of the worst case scenario, the four extreme disasters. And he signals each one of them with a little word through or though, I should say. And he mentions them. We don't have to fear what? Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, in biblical times and even in our day, truthfully, mountains were the symbols of stability. They were the certain things, things that could not be moved. They were immovable. And twice, once in verse 2 and once in verse 3, here's what they say. The mountains could be moved. That's how bad the scenario is. Mountains are trembling, he says. The earth gives way. I don't know if that's a, a slot, a, a, like an a avalanche or some sort of earthquake or volcano where the earth itself is moved. Sea waters roar and foam at its swelling. Is that a tsunami, a tidal wave, some sort of cataclysmic uh, natural disaster? 
But here's what the psalmist says. The nature or creation can throw anything at you, even the worst case scenario of all you think of it. The most stable things are no longer certain. He says, here's what, we don't have to fear any of them, he says. No fear. Why? Because we have a God who has no situation that he can't handle. Bring it on, so to speak. The floods, the flames, God can handle them all. It's our first theology lesson tonight. Who is God? Who is God? But the second one in verses 4 through 7 is where is God? Where is God? And the psalmist says to us in verse number 4, the na- I'm sorry, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, Underline this, God is in the midst of her. He's in the center. Right there in the middle of all of her problems, God is there. He emphasizes it again in verses 7, 11 in the refrain when he says, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, he's with us. See, be encouraged tonight with this reality that the God that we serve is not distant. He's not detached. He's not disinterested. Our God is right here in the middle. He's not off somewhere else in the distance. He helps by being hands-on. He's right in the middle of our city. He's right in the middle of our problems. That presence of God, that biblical truth that he is with us, does two things in this stanza. Number one, it gladdens us. And this is important. Verse 4 says, of of Psalm 46, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, in the first stanza, waters were chaotic. Waters were the place and source of darkness and evil. They were bringing death and destruction on people. God takes that metaphor and he says, you know what? God says that's the waters outside of the city. But the waters inside of the city, they are all for good. Instead of bringing death, they bring life. Everything outside of the city is miserable, and the waters are destructive. But the waters that God brings in, the waters that flow right into the center of the city when they need them the most, see, they are, they are giving out life instead. Hezekiah had diverted the water through the tunnel from the Gihon Spring, and that was going to bring a source of life to the people. But here's what God wants you to know, that that river is him. He is the source of life. And because God is with us as a church, because God is with you as an individual and with your family, if God is in the midst and his river is flowing in and to us with his life, can I tell you, it ought to make us glad. When everyone else around us in our city, in Hamilton, has lost their joy, and finds no real occasion at all as they look around at their situation and circumstance and their economic difficulties and their jobs and their fears and the uncertainty of the future, it is easy to not be glad whatsoever. But can I tell you, children of God, family, we belong to a different city. We are not members and citizens, so to speak, of the city, the city of man, but we are members of the city of God. We have a different source of gladness. 
See, our world has had their source of gladness suspended. Because for a lot of people in our world, and unfortunately even at times Christians, see, we have found our gladness in things like sports. And now there's no March Madness, there's no NBA, there's no basketball, there's no tournaments, there's no nothing. People are kind of wondering what they do with themselves with all the time they have now that they're not watching sports. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of the source of joy and gladness came from. But that's gone People find it in their accomplishments through school and education, which is a good thing in and of itself. But now people are at home. They're having a different kind of education, and they're not sure how that's going to last or how long. How, see, people have lost that, and now they're upset, and they don't want, and see, the gladness has departed. They can't go to restaurants. You can't sit down and have a meal. You can't get on a plane and travel places. You can't go to the, the, uh, the spots that you'd like to, and you can't enjoy all the things that you really brought joy and gladness. You can't go to the shopping malls. You can't go buy things only through Amazon pretty much even more at this point. And all of those things, all of those things and many more that the world has tried to find its source of gladness in, see, they have been deprived of them all by a small, invisible, almost little virus. But not when you find your source of gladness in God. No, you see, he's different. God provides a different source of gladness. He has a river that flows into the middle of your problems, into the middle of the city. And it changes your view and perspective and understanding of everything going on outside the city, outside the walls. Because if all you saw was outside the walls in the city, you would be anything but glad. But with God is in the midst and God is with us, the Lord of hosts, it changes our view and our understanding of how we see everything. And that's why from the beginning of the Bible, if you want to do a little biblical theology, until the end of the Bible, in all the places that God dwells, First of all, the Eden. Eden had two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, that, th- that came right through the garden. Because God always says, where I am, there's life and there's a cause for gladness. If you read Ezekiel chapter 47 in God future, looking at the temple, he talks about the water that runs through the city and breathes life and healing to everything. And then the Bible closes with the same vision, except even on a more grand scale. In Revelation 22, he talks about the New Jerusalem. And in the New Jerusalem, there's going to be a river. And that river comes right out from the very throne of God. And it feeds the the trees of life that are on the banks of the river. And that brings healing for all the nations. You see, wherever God really is, when God is the center, when God is the middle or the center of the church, of a family, of an individual life, even though outside the walls things may be chaotic, In fact, outside the walls in Revelation 22, it says are all the dogs and the sorcerers and the drug addicts and all the things it says outside are still all those things. But not see the river that flows through it, it gives us gladness and it gives us joy. And so God being in the midst, where is God? Well, he's in the middle. He's right in the center of it all. He's with us. And what should that do? Well, number one, it gladdens us. But number two, it guards us. Look at verse five. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now, did you see before? The unshakable, unmovable mountains, earlier they could be moved. Strangely, strangely that they could be moved when no one else thought they could. But if you have your trust in God, who is in the midst, you can't be moved. Mountains, yes. You, no. 
he says. A lot of contrast taking place here. He says, and God will not be moved. And when the morning dawns, God will help us. See, I didn't tell you the rest of the story about the Lord of the Rings and Helm's Deep. The fortress wasn't quite as impregnable as they thought. Eventually, they were being overrun. They made one last effort to get out uh, on horses. And as they are, they remember the words of Gandalf, who said on the fifth day he would come when the morning dawned. And they come outside the castle, and they're surrounded by all the orcs. And he looks up at the top of the ravine, and Gandalf's there, and the light is shining, and he has a complete army with them, and they come flooding down the ravine and overrun what looked like an impossible situation. And the idea from Tolkien is obvious that that's the Lord Jesus, that, see, he comes. See, when the day looks like there's no possible victory, and when everything looks like it's going to end, and there's no way that we're going to be having any victory, see, that's when God says, when the morning dawns. See, if you ever read the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, you'll find that when Israel was backed up to the Red Sea, and that the Pharaoh and the Egyptian army had pinned them in, and there was no way out, and God provides the water to walk through and gets them on dry ground, and then it says God allowed all of the water to collapse on them. It says to them that, see, when the morning dawned, that's when God got the victory. Read it for yourself in Exodus 14, 24. See, those kind of stories remind us that even though our timing is not the same as God's, God knows what we're going through. And where is he? He's right there working through the difficulties and battles that we face. The contrast in the text is unique. Verse 3 says that the waters roar and foam. Now, in the English, it doesn't look so, but in Hebrew, those two words, roar and foam, are used again in our stanza, in verse 6, when it says, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. You see, God can control any disaster from nature and any disaster from the nations. He can do both because that's who God is. He can guard us. It doesn't matter what form the enemy comes in. It doesn't matter how strong it is and overwhelming it may seem to us. The Bible says that God can handle them all. Where is he? Because he's right there in the middle of it all. How does he do it? Listen to this. Be amazed by this, verse 6. The nations raise the kingdoms totter. How? How does he do it? He utters or thunders, thunders his voice, and the earth melts. You know how he does it? He just says the word. He just speaks it. That's powerful, isn't it? Remember when there, well, of course you don't remember, but you know from the Bible, there was nothing, and in the nothingness, God said with his voice, let there be light, and when there was nothing, now there was something. There was light. When there had never been anything, To bring it to pass, all God had to do is say the word. You remember the centurion that Jesus said had great faith? He said, Master, it's not necessary, and I'm not worthy that you would ever come to my house to heal my servant. He says, here's what I know, though. See, all you have to do is say the word, and it will be done. And Jesus said the word, and it was done. 
And he healed him from a distance. See, because God's word is powerful. One day at a tomb, Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend who had been buried for four days and said these words, Lazarus, come forth. And just the words of Jesus was enough to raise a man from the dead. On the cross of Calvary, our Savior hung, bearing our sin and shame. And one of the last words he spoke before he died was, it is finished. I mean, in just words, he accomplished a salvation that no human being could ever have provided. But our God can do those things and many more. And all he has to do is say the word. He utters his voice. And guess what? The earth and everything in it can melt. Why? Because God is sovereign over it. Where is he? Well, he's right there. He's right there in the middle of your problems and our, my problems and our nation's problems and the world's problems. And he controls it all with his very word. That's theology lesson number two. Lastly, number three, what is God doing? Verses 8 through 11. So they invite us in verse 8. It says, come behold the works of the Lord. Come and see. It's a It's a common invitation in the Old Testament. Come and see the works of the Lord. It's an invitation for Hezekiah or whoever it might have been. It's an invitation for us to change our focus. If it was Hezekiah, it was to change his focus from the troubles outside to the temple on the inside. See, when he got the letter demanding the the unconditional surrender... The Bible says that he went from off the wall looking out at Sennacherib in the impossible elements of victory in the army of 185,000. And he took the letter and he went right into the house of God, right up to the temple. And he went right into as far as he could go. And he puts the letter out there and says, God, see this? See this? See, that's what it's an invitation. Here's what here's the theology lesson. See, our focus is on the virus and on the difficulties and the pain or whatever trouble you are facing. And here's what God says. Here's the invitation. Stop focusing on the trouble outside and look at the temple inside the city. Look at where God is. This is what God can do, listen, and is doing. People are asking, well, where's God doing right now? Can I tell you what he's doing? He's making a name for himself. Notice the verbs in the text. Come behold the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. Now notice, he makes, he breaks, he burns, verse 8. See, here's what he's up to. He's making the wars come to an end. He's breaking the bow and he's shattering the spear. See, the bow was long distance fighting. The spear was up close fighting. The chariot was was taking place when you had an army that you were overwhelming everybody with your chariots. And God said, you know what? I've been taking on your enemies. You know the ones that you can't face? I fight them up close. I fight them far away. When they are overwhelming and have weapons that you never dreamed of, he says, you know what I'm doing? I'm working. That's his word. I'm working in this scenario. Maybe you don't see it all and you don't understand it all. And when they woke up the next day, they had no idea why 185,000 Assyrians were dead. But God says, I'm working at it. And then he says this. And maybe this will just reset your heart and mind about what is God up to. Be still and know that I am God. Now that is for his people, yes. But I think it's for the nations too. It is no accident, in my opinion as I read scripture, 
that the COVID-19 virus has not just hit America. It's hit over 100 nations in our world and probably more if we knew for testing, it'd be so much more. Why? Here's what God says to his people and here's what God says to all the nations. Be still. The Hebrew word means stop. Desist, it says. One translation, the Tanakh says, desist, realize that I am God. Another says, stop, acknowledge that I am God. One of the things or purposes that God has in COVID-19 is that everyone in this world, no matter what nation you are, whether it's the United States or Italy or China or anywhere else, that in the middle of your tracks and all that's going on, that the things around you would make you do this. Stop. Stop right where you are and come to this conclusion. I am God. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. And God says, here's why. Let me turn you from warfare to worship in your mind. He says twice, I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. God's greatest goal in COVID-19 and in all the things that he does in his world, it all comes back to God's glory, that he wants to be worshipped, that he will be exalted. And he is one of the reasons, one of them, is that he is getting the attention of everyone. Because it doesn't matter right now, does it? It doesn't matter what the color of your skin or the background of your nationality or the language that you speak because there is no one immune from COVID-19. Not in and of themselves. See, and what we need more than anything else is not a worldwide cure, but a worldwide worship. And God is pursuing it. He wants the nations to stop and say, do you recognize your humanity? Can you see your mortality? Do you understand that you're limited, that you're not in control? Stop. (laughs) Stop. And realize I'm God. And probably the reference is, and you are not. And you are not. It is good for us. It is good for us as God's people to let COVID-19, God through COVID-19, to get our attention. In the midst of our troubles and uncertainty, to get on our knees And say, Lord, you are God, and you alone, and I worship you. And that we would say, and God, let me pray for the nations. The nations right around me, the nations next door, the nations around the world, and people who are affected by this that I'll never know, see, or understand who they are. But here's what I do know. Every single one of us need to worship you. Please use this virus and everything that goes with it to bring people's attention to how great you are and that you're the only true living God and you deserve all of our worship. As a result of this psalm, and I'll close with this tonight, Martin Luther, in October of 1527, it was in Germany, was confronted because the bubonic plague or what was called the Black Death finally came to his area of the world. Thousands upon thousands of people had died The people that were in charge of his church and otherwise had begged him to go somewhere else to miss being around the plague whatsoever. Quote, unquote, he was too valuable to the Reformation to risk it. But he didn't leave. And it was risky because he had a very small son. His wife, Katerina, was pregnant. 
and he stayed there. And on top of that, he had people in his house to eat meals who had no food and people that were sick. He tended them to the point where the people in the city called his house a hospital. Through all of those difficulties and facing a horrible, can I say, virus, far worse than even what we face. He read Psalm 46 and wrote the very famous, if not one of the most famous, hymns in our hymn book, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Because for Martin Luther, the source of his safety from the black death of the bubonic plague, from that sickness, was not anything outside of him. But it was his theology about who God was, where God was, and what God was doing through it. That gave him strength to get through it and have a ministry as well. Let me close tonight with a song from Steve Green, a cappella actually. And don't worry about the technology of it. Just listen to the theology of it and worship God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate On earth is not his equal Did we in our own strength confide Our striving would be losing Were not the right man on our side The man of God's own choosing You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fail him that word above all earthly powers no This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is 
is forever. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. And Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the king and your kingdom endures forever. We don't tremble for any of these things. We tremble at the great God that you are. And we want to give you our worship tonight, not because of what you do for us, but because you are alone are God. May all the nations join us in worshiping you that the whole world might exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And we'll thank you for that. In his wonderful and matchless name, we ask it. Amen. Lord bless.